Uh, would you join me in the Gospel of John? John chapter 13. This morning we enter a new phase of our time with this Gospel. Uh, Jesus has withdrawn from public ministry and has gathered with His disciples around a table. And we spend the next uh, few chapters, all the way till chapter 17, with Jesus around the table with His disciples. And this picture is a great picture of who we are as a church. This is Centerpoint Church. We are gathered around a table with Jesus. Uh, not, not only in what we do on Sunday, but, but throughout the week. And so this portion of Scripture speaks powerfully uh, to who we are, to how we should live and function as Jesus' people uh, in this world. And, uh, and so I, I think so much to be said uh, to us here. And so we're going to begin now in John 13 this morning. I'll read a couple of different sections of this chapter, but I'll begin in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. 
I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And then jump down to verse 31 with me. I'll read a few more verses. When he, that's Judas, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father, would you help us now, as we come to these beautiful, powerful words and actions of your Son. We come trusting that that he is the word. He is the one who was with God. He is the one who is God. He is the one by whom all things were made. He is the one who took on flesh and dwelt among us. We come also trusting that we know him as your word uh, through these words, through this scripture, this book that you have given to us, which uh, often confuses us, uh, challenges us. And so we come now and we ask that as we come trusting that this is a gift from you, uh, that you would help us to receive this gift, that you would help us to come humbly, willing uh, to repent, uh, willing to be taught, uh, willing to be challenged, and willing to be comforted. Uh, Would you make your word powerful and effective? In us this morning. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, last week we were sitting here at this moment. And and those blinds were open back there. And and we were half uh, paying attention to the service and half looking out the window. uh, Wondering about the weather. And uh, wondering if we were going to get blown away by the storms that came through our town. And, of course, later in the day, even more storms came through town and did a good bit of damage and knocked power out. Knocked power out at my house for three or four hours Sunday evening. And, and you know, I have to be honest, um, after power came back on at my house, I kind of forgot about what had happened. I forgot about the storm coming through on Sunday. I forgot about the damage that it had done. Until I came here on Monday night uh, to our men's study. And I realized that there were people in our congregation that were still without power on Monday night. You see, until I came here Monday night, I lived with my concern and attention limited to the four walls of my house. And and I think it's probably obvious to, to most of you that Jesus doesn't want us To live that way. He doesn't want us to live 
with our concern and with our attention limited to the four walls of our house. Isn't it telling that in the last few moments of conversation between Jesus and his disciples, he doesn't just talk about himself. He doesn't just talk about himself. He doesn't say, hey guys, let's talk about me. He says also, let's talk about you. And more accurately, let's talk about y'all as a community. Uh, Which is a conversation not only with the disciples then, but with the disciples now. Sitting here in this room, he says, let's talk about you. Let's talk about how you should Love one another. Let's talk about how the world will know that you belong to me, not by what you put on your church website, but how you take care of each other, how you love each other, how you treat each other, how you serve one another. Love one another. Simple, right? Easy, right? No, wrong. (laughs) Not simple and easy. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you know this is not simple and easy. This call of Jesus, these few words spoken by Jesus to us that define how we should live life together, they are not simple and easy. They are confusing at times and complicated and difficult and painful. And so this morning, I want us to view this scene here in John chapter 13. I want us to look at what Jesus does. I want us to hear what he says. And I want us to contemplate love in two parts. Love modeled and love empowered. Love modeled and love empowered. First of all, love modeled. You notice how here we are not given a dictionary definition of love. We are not given a definition. We are given an embodiment, an enactment, an example. So that I I think if you were to ask the gospel writer, John, if you were to ask him, John, tell me, what is love? He wouldn't spill out a definition. He would say, look, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus as he changes his clothes, as he pours out the water, as he gets on his knees, and as he scrubs the filth from his disciples' feet. You've got to understand, this would have been an incredibly awkward moment. You know how when you're with friends, a group of friends, or a group of family members, and someone does or says something socially inappropriate that makes everyone uncomfortable, and and all you can think is, how can we change the subject, or how can I get out of this situation? You know that awkwardness? That's this moment. That's Jesus. Jesus was being inappropriate, according to the social customs Of that time. Jesus was completely upending social protocol. 
inferiors wash the feet of superiors, not the other way around. Understand that if Jesus had asked his disciples to wash his feet, they would have had zero problem with that. What does Peter have a problem with? Is Jesus watching, washing his feet. Jesus upends social protocol. And, and the awkwardness of this, the, the challenge of this, the tension of this, is not just the particularities of this culture, it's the universality of feet, which are gross <laughs> and stinky at the end of the day. Especially if you walk around in sandals on streets that would have mixed mud and manure and other foul-smelling substances. I was in the marching band in high school. Try not to be overwhelmed by my coolness. Um, and, and, and there was a tradition at my school. I don't know how this got started, but, but every year the, the marching band marched in the parade for Mule Day at Calvary, Georgia, not far from here. And because it was the Mule's Day... They went in the front of the parade and left significant fecal evidence of their presence in the front of the parade. And so left the bands to try to march and play music and also dodge the evidence that they have left behind, which you can never do all of those things or any of those things successfully. So what Jesus does here is a little bit like washing my shoes after marching in that parade. The light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the word, the eternal word and glory of God up close and personal with the stench, with the filth of the street. And not only that, he did it fully knowing. That one of his disciples would betray him. Another of his disciples would publicly deny him. And all of his disciples on those feet that he washed would turn and run. In the moment of his arrest and the trial of false accusation and his execution. That's love modeled. That's what love looks like. Now, why would Jesus do it this way? Why would he demonstrate love by washing feet? Well, another thing we need to understand that was that foot washing wasn't just good hygiene in this culture. It was also good hospitality. Foot washing was essential to how you welcome someone into your home. How you welcome someone to your table. Now it was never or hardly ever done by the host. It was usually done by the servants, the slaves of the host. But it was an essential practice of hospitality. And so Jesus here establishes himself as a host. And he does the dirty work of hospitality. Welcoming his disciples to a table. And what is the table? What's the table to which he welcomes them? Well, what's the time stamp here on John 13? It's the Passover. It's the time of Passover. This is the table of memory. It's a table that remembered how God had rescued his people 
Israel from Egypt. But it was also a table of hope. It was a table that looked forward to another deeper, more powerful, more final rescuing effort by God. A restoration of the fullness of life of creatures with with their creator. And at this table and other places in scripture, this is where Jesus says, here is my body broken for you. Here is my blood poured out for your redemption. So see Jesus, he washes their feet as a way to welcome them to the table of God's grace. To the table of God's favor. To the table of the life that comes only from God. Jesus washes their feet as an act of hospitality, not to just any old dinner party, but into God's house, into his table. And this moment, this symbolic action encapsulates all of Jesus' ministry. He comes from God. Just as he set aside his outer garments and wrapped himself in the towel of a slave, he comes from God and he will return to God. We'll read later in the Gospel of John and in the New Testament. Just as he takes on those outer garments and puts them back on and places himself back at the table, he will return to God. And in between coming from God and returning to God, he encounters the stench. He encounters the filth. Of a world of humanity ruined by sin. And he does it as an act of hospitality. He does it to welcome those who believe in him to the house of God. To the table of God's goodness, grace, and mercy. That's love modeled. That's what love looks like. That's what should characterize how we treat each other. It is, love is humility for the sake of hospitality. Love is humility for the sake of hospitality. It is setting aside personal agenda. It's setting aside personal and cultural preferences. It is set aside, setting aside self-interest. For the sake of helping each other taste the goodness of God. For the sake of helping each other taste the grace and the mercy. And know that we belong, that we have the life that comes from Him. It is a willingness to come close enough to each other. To find out that everybody stinks. And I'm not just talking physically, of course. It is being close enough to other people to be able to smell it. But not recoil. But to stay and to welcome them into the grace that is theirs through Jesus. That's what should characterize our life together. And that is a call not just to those who preach and teach and administer the sacraments. 
That speaks to even the small acts of service that we do for each other. Concrete and practical ways that we can care for each other. I was so grateful to come here on Monday morning. Although I was oblivious to need, others weren't. And there were resources passing around our congregation to help those who are still without power. Just a small glimmer of this pattern at work. A pattern of one person inconveniencing themselves for the good of someone else. A pattern of reflecting Jesus on his knees, in the filth, washing his disciples. But still, to hold that up as our model, doesn't that put love out of the realm of possibility? I mean, I can be nice every once in a while, right? I can be nice every once in a while, especially to someone whom I like. (laughs) But this is going way, way, this is much more radical than that, right? How is it? Doesn't this put it out the realm of possibility? How can we do this? How can we love like this? Well, consider secondly, not only love modeled, but love empowered. Jesus here in John chapter 13 wasn't just practicing good hygiene and good hospitality. Something else was going on as well. And to grasp it, we need to recall how important water is as a symbol in the Gospel of John and throughout Scripture. That water speaks of God working uh, to meet the deep thirst of humanity and to meet the deep need for cleansing. For humanity. And so in John chapter 3, Jesus talks to the religiously and politically elite Nicodemus. And he says, Nicodemus, even with all of your credentials, even with all of your education, you still haven't been born yet when it comes to the kingdom of God. And you need to be born of water and the Spirit. And in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking with a very different person in that society. He's talking to the woman at the well, this woman who had gone from man to man to man to man. And he says to her, you're thirsty. And I can give you living water. And then in John chapter 7, Jesus is at the temple at a ritual that involved water. And he stands up and there's a great crowd around him and he cries out and he says, anyone who comes to me, Out of him will flow rivers of living water. And then perhaps most relevant to our text this morning, John chapter 9. Do you remember it? Do you remember the man who was born blind? And Jesus heals not by speaking, but by rubbing mud on his eyes and telling him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off. You remember how we talked about that mud? What it was a symbol of? How it, how it was a, a symbol that this man wasn't unique as a sinner, but he belonged to the impact of sin on the human race as a result of the sin of Adam. And so that mud was the mark of Adam. And now Jesus is demonstrating that he had come to wash that mud away. He's doing the same thing here in John 
chapter 13. As he takes the filthy feet of his disciples and washing, washes the, the dirt away, he is saying, he is demonstrating that I am here to wash away the mud of Adam. The heritage of sin which has ruined this world, which has ruined the human race. Now what does that have to do with love? What does that have to do with us and our ability to love like Jesus? Well, to answer that question, we have to realize what keeps us from love. What keeps us from giving ourselves away for the good of others. And it's not just selfishness. It is selfishness, self-focus that results from shame. It's interesting. Our culture doesn't like to talk about guilt. Our culture doesn't, especially the Christian view of guilt and sin, our culture doesn't like that message. But you know what? Shame as a topic in our culture is more popular than ever. 2010, a social psychologist blew up the internet talking about shame. Brene Brown gave a TED Talk, and it was posted online, and it has over 20 million views as of yesterday. I went and checked. Um, and it, it is a talk about her research on the dynamics of shame in our lives and in our relationships. And she's become this self-help rock star. Why? It's because she touched on something real. She touched on something real that even though we may dismiss the idea of sin, we still feel like sinners. Shame isn't just feeling bad about what you've done. It's feeling bad about who you are. It is a deep sense of unworthiness. Of being unacceptable. And you know what it is? You know what that sense is? You know what that shame is? It is the deep sense of the mud of Adam. And that's what keeps us from loving. That's what keeps us from giving ourselves away in the way that Jesus does. You see... We are self-focused not because we think we're so great. We are self-focused because we're trying to overcome the sense that we're not so great. We're trying to deal with that deep sense of our unworthiness. We're trying to prove ourselves worthy. We're like Lady Macbeth rubbing her hands together and saying, Out damn spot. And Jesus is saying, You can't wash that away on your own. You can't deal with that sense of unworthiness on your own. And he is saying, I have come to deal with it for you. He is saying, I have come to wash it away. That's why he says to Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you'll understand what I'm doing later. Later, after what? After the cross, after Jesus was lifted up and exposed in a most shameful way, 
Peter, you'll understand what I am doing after I have been shamed for your sin. I have been shamed for the sin and the heritage of Adam. You'll understand what I am doing then. You'll understand what I am doing when I am lifted up and out of my side pours blood and water. Blood and water that can wash away stain. You see, this washing here isn't just exemplary. It's effective. It is effective to wash away that deep sense of unworthiness that we have inherited from Adam. And if you're going to follow the example, you've got to receive the effective work. You can't follow the example without the effectiveness of this washing. You see, if you are going to welcome others like Jesus, you have to be welcomed by Him. If you are going to serve others with Jesus, you have to be served by Him. Isn't that what He's teaching His disciples? And He's saying you can't just do it once. This isn't just a one-time conversion. There is a one-timeness to it. There's a definitive washing that he tells Peter about. But then he says, but, but I need to continue the work. I will continue this work of washing. And so you need to come again and again and again to my cleansing work. My forgiving work. My merciful work. That's where you'll learn to love. That's where you'll be empowered to love. And see, this is where the gospel, the message about Jesus, diverges from our cultural message about shame. See, the cultural message is, when you hear that voice of shame, you stand up to it. And you shout it down and you say, no, 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 I'm enough. I'm worthy. And the problem is, that only works for so long. And eventually that voice will take over. The gospel says something else. It says when you hear that voice of shame, you say, you know what? You're right. I am unworthy. I am not enough, but he is. He is, and he is so worthy. He is so enough that He can wash away the mud of Adam and me. And He can welcome me to the house, to the table of God. For to love like Jesus, we have to learn to live in a conversation. It's a conversation Uh, that George Herbert really understood. George Herbert was a pastor, but he's more famous and well-known today as a poet. And he talks about this conversation in his poem titled Love 3. 
And in that poem, he imagines the voice of love, which for him is the voice of God through Jesus. And the voice of love speaks to him and invites him into a meal. But the poet Herbert, he, he leans back and he says, My soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, the voice of God through Jesus, reaches out again, invites him again, pursues him again. And all throughout this poem, there's this back-and-forth dance of hesitation on his, on his part and love reaching out and drawing him in. And finally it gets to where Herbert says, Lord, let my shame go where it doth deserve. Dismiss me. Reject me. I am unworthy. I don't belong here. And then that other voice intrudes. Know you not, says love, who bore the blame? Know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down and taste my meat. And finally, the poet surrenders and says, so I did sit and eat. If you're going to love like Jesus, you have to live in that conversation. You have to live in the conversation where you hear the voice and the actions of divine love saying to you, know you not, who bore the blame? you got to sit down and eat. So look to Jesus as a model. We should. We should look to Jesus as our example. He is the definition of the love to which God calls us. The love with which we should love one another. But don't stop there. That will crush you. Come to know the one who bore the blame. Let him Wash your feet this morning. Let him wash your feet this week. Let him invite you through his nail-pierced hands to the table of God and the true life that you will find there. Let's pray.